My guest today, Dick Costello, is categorically the only person in Silicon Valley who can say that they have not only run four companies, including a little startup called Twitter, but they have also performed improv comedy on a stage with Steve Carell and other major comedians. We're going to talk about all those things today, along with what it's really like to be the CEO of a public company and how you even take a company public. We're also going to hear sage advice business leaders have offered Dick over the years, and we'll address them that's been on all of our minds, which is, is there anything Twitter could have done years ago to stop trolls from commandeering the platform, including a certain someone who goes by the name Real Donald Trump? So without further ado, I give you Dick Costello. Thanks for joining me today, Dick. Is this the studio? This is the, <laughs> we're at the Beverly Hills Hotel because we couldn't find an office anywhere. Uh, no, because this is where oh, this, you do the Vanity Fair podcast. This is where I do the Vanity Fair podcast with my wonderful friend and guest, Dick Costello. Um, should we jump right in at the Beverly? That's uh, so, We already did. Here we, we are here we in are. our studio at the Beverly Hills Hotel on the terrace, no less. Um, so, okay. So you've built uh, three incredibly successful companies, uh, maybe uh, four when you count Twitter. Uh, one of your companies sold to Google for $100 million. You took Twitter public. Um, but yet every time I see you, I feel like you're you're like literally running five thousand miles a minute. Why not just kind of hang up the laptop and and go sit by the pool? <laughs> Fear. No, uh, it's a good question. I think you know I'm not um, I'm not an extrinsically motivated person. I mean I'm not motivated by things or stuff or I need to, I want to have this I want to get this money or have this thing. I'm really um, sort of motivated by. Um, um, purpose and 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 uh, goals and uh, much more intrinsically motivated. Um, and I wasn't going. I wasn't planning on starting another company um, uh, very very soon after leaving Twitter. And in fact, I plan to take a long time off. Um, and I just saw that the uh, the digital fitness space I felt like um, was not fulfilling people's um, desire to become healthy and become fit in the way that a lot of the real world um, fitness space was um, through things like social motivation and social accountability, small groups of people doing things in together, um, holding themselves accountable to doing what they, the you know, achieving the health goals they want. Um, so I thought it'd be a good idea to try to build the digital version of that. And then once you get into these things, you just sort of like, Spin yourself into the vortex again and start running 100 miles an hour. So you you left Twitter was it a, year, a little over a year ago I now? Was, I, I told the company I was leaving on June 11th, 2015, and I think July 1st was my last day. Not that I remember. Not that you remember. And uh, so you had a you had a million options. You could have been a VC. You could have you know. Uh, gone and started a kite surfing company <laughs> or a juice a juicer making now you company. tell me yeah God, uh, why didn't i think so of that? fitness was the thing that you that drew you um i had a bunch of offers to do all sorts of um, different things but interestingly the um, when i announced i was leaving twitter peter goober um the uh, uh, hollywood producer and uh, one of the you know owners of the dodgers and the and one of the owners of the golden state warriors um, sent me an email and said, hey, I'm going to be in town for the Warriors um, um, NBA championship parade. It was the year they'd won the, ch- year they'd won the championship. Um, I want to take you out to dinner. I just saw the news, I want to take you out to dinner. And Peter took me out to dinner and he said, I want to tell you a story about you know, the time I left. Um, uh, I, I stepped down uh, from Sony Entertainment and 
had all these offers of things I should do next. And he said, I want to give you advice that, you know, I didn't do a good job of listening to it. My strong advice for you is um, be a fisherman, don't be a catcher. And what, I, what he meant by that was you're going to get all these offers coming in at you and, and don't, you know, you'd be nice to people and re- respectful and you know, meet with them, and, uh, but don't take any of those at all, no matter what they are. Because you need time to create distance between what you've just done and how you feel about what you've just done and maybe any things you felt like you you did achieve or you didn't achieve. And you need to create distance between that and whatever comes next. And what comes next should be based on looking out at the world and deciding what you want to do, not what someone else thinks would be a good thing for you to do. And that was the best, um, the best advice I got. I did wait. Um, I waited sort of six or seven months before all the inbound died down. And in that time is when I uh, observed and and spent more time thinking about and looking at this um, difference between what I thought was the success of uh, the real world um, wellness and fitness movement and the lack of that um, th- those uh, that progress in the digital world. So okay, so that was a very long answer. No, to but question, it was a but... it was a really good answer. I like that analogy. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this will actually really uh, find that useful. I know I will. Um, uh, so people today, we kind of we everyone glorifies CEOs and business leaders, right? They um, uh, and business leaders, of course. Yeah, they be, even they mythologize them. Yeah, well, not just glorify them, mythologize them. AKA Steve Jobs. Um, uh, but as a as a business leader, you can't necessarily say, "Well, I you know I feel really anxious about this meeting, or or you know this this part of my job that sucks because investors are going to be upset and your employees aren't going to think you're you know uh, Hercules and and so on." But can you talk a little bit about about the downsides of of, of running a public company or even running a company? Yeah, happy to. Um, I can talk about that for hours. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. I remember. I'll tell another story to start off. Stories I remember being at a CEO conference. In fact, with uh, I was at a CEO conference with just twenty or thirty other CEOs. And these are CEOs of big companies, public companies, private big companies. You know, these are. 30, 40,000 person companies. Um, and, uh, and every CEO at this, at uh, this conference had to sort of get up and, 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 and give a talk. Um, and to make a long story short, at one point, one of the CEOs of a very successful company, um, you know, has basically talks about, you know, that feeling when you wake up at three in the morning and you don't want to press your hands against your head because you feel like it's all going to come crashing down. And what if you ruin everything? And, and I remember thinking, Oh, everybody has that, (laughs) you know, it's one of those, Oh, I didn't, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, of course the problem is when you, you know, you go to these conferences and you see people and you run into other CEOs and you ask them how it's going. And the answer is always great. How's it going with you? great and you know no one will say how's it going i'm you know fluctuate between euphoria and misery how about you <laughs> and the reality is all these companies you fluctuate between euphoria and we figured it out and it's off to the races and and you know horror and and you know existential dread and it's i think it's like that for every self-aware ceo there's certainly executives who are who start to believe the hype and become you know can, can become uh, caricatures of, 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 a, of a CEO and maybe of themselves. But I think for most self-aware people, it's like we, that. We won't name any names. Let's not. Um, all right. So tell me, tell me a story about, uh, about um, when you were 
when you took Twitter public, something that happened that was just that was either amazing or terrifying. It's just like a thing that happened. That, I can, again, I can, again. We no, can, this is this is why you you're the length. you're the greatest storyteller. I mean, it's like. <laughs> All right, so I'll tell you two stories. One of them is about the IPO process. Okay. And the story I'll tell about the IPO process is it's the most ridiculous process ever invented. For some reason, you go on this roadshow. And the roadshow is, for people who don't want to know what the roadshow is, the roadshow is you and your bankers get on a plane. Um, hopefully, you get on a plane. We got to get on a plane. And you fly around to go meet all the potential institutional investors in your company. And are you these know, like... Dozens of them. Are these banks or... They're, they're mutual funds. They're... they're, uh, they're uh, big institutions and hedge, they're, they're hedge funds, they're, um, you know, uh, pension funds, all these big institutional investors, everything from, from Fidelity uh, to, to, you know, to uh, the Sovereign Fund of Singapore, on, on and on and on. And you may meet me with dozens of them. I think in, in our case, it might have been like 80. And, and, and in fact, you don't just, and you meet one-on-one -on -one with lots of them, um, just you and sort of, you know, it might be the, the um, product managers from, from this, some, from, from mutual fund or you and the general partners of some hedge fund. Um, and you may have like eight or nine of these meetings a day. And then at lunch, usually um, you don't take a break for lunch. You go to a big ballroom in some hotel where you're having meetings. <laughs> and in that meeting, while you have lunch, you go through the same process with sort of, you know, here are 50 other in potential investors that may not, you know, be able to buy as many shares, but collectively, you know, they're, they're a, another set of the sort of the next tier of potential investors in the company. Not that they're smaller, but, you know, maybe they're not as interested or they, they're, they're not going to uh, buy as big a stake, et cetera. And the crazy thing about this process is you have the exact same meeting like 90 times. You get the same questions. You give the same answers. And then you go to the next meeting and you get the same. And so you, you reasonably ask yourself, why don't we have one meeting <laughs> with everybody in the room? We'll, or two, we'll go to New York for one and we'll go to LA for one. But you don't do that. You have 80 meetings. And it's exhausting and crazy because you're answering the same question um you know you can't obviously it's a you're taking company public you hopefully are what? hopefully you're telling everybody the same the same answer to the same questions so it's I, I don't i to this day don't understand why it must be so it obviously has to have something to do with um the banks and and the process and the way it the the, the sort of uh, the history of the way those things are the banks and the investors and the maybe the institutions are tied like together. Um, I think it's a combination of things, probably having to do with um, relationships between the banks and the institutions and the institutions thinking I don't want anyone else to hear my proprietary questions, mm. but the questions are the same questions. So what's so there's a second side. Sometimes they're asked more nicely. Sometimes they're asked more aggressively. And the second part of the story? Oh yeah. Uh, so the second part of the story is you know it took Twitter um, took us I think it was seven years before we took the company public from the time it was started to the time we took it public in 2013. And in that seven years, um, 
up to the time we filed our S1, we printed a price of, you know, the share price above between $16 and $19 on the S1. Basically saying, like, we think we're going to offer these shares between $16 and $19. You print a price on the cover of the S1. So it takes us six and a half years to get there. We go on the roadshow, and the roadshow ends, to make a long, very long story short, a whole nother long story about pricing short, um, which I which I could talk about for an hour. We decide to price our shares the night before the IPO, which is when you price, based on the demand you've gotten from the institutions from the roadshow, we decide to price it at $26 a share. And already I'm in the room with our general counsel saying, gosh, it's funny that it took us, it's funny, funny, peculiar. I mean, it took us six and a half years to get to a company that was worth $16 to $19 a share. And now here we are two weeks later saying it's $26 a share. Can I just ask a question? How, how do you, how does that number come up about? Is it, is it based on the number? This num- is a, this is a whole nother, this is a whole nother month of therapy. I mean, it's a long, <laughs> it's a long story. It's, it could be shortened. And the short answer is. Give me the 140 character version. You, you put your thumb in the air and go, it looks like about here based on the demand. Got it. Literally. Got it. That makes, okay, but uh, yeah. again, that's the okay. short, short version. So we decide to price at 26. Morning the IPO, I'm on a CNBC. I go on CNBC uh, while the market makers are trying to figure out where the stock is going to open. And I'm on CNBC and I'm talking and I hear in the background while we're doing some Q&A, uh, I hear I've got, I've got, 10 million at 43, something like that, right? And I think like, think to myself, oh, that's funny. I thought we were the only company going public this morning on the New York Stock Exchange, but somebody else is going public at 43. Someone else has got an offering that they're doing. And and as I'm thinking that, one of the CNBC anchors, it was might've been Jim Cramer or Carl Quintanilla says, so it sounds like they're open. It looks like from what I can hear, what we can hear from the market makers, it sounds like the stock's going to open around 43. Anyway, it's crazy. So the stock closes at like, I'm not going to get this right, but let's say $45 a share. So I, we, we've, we fly back to San Francisco that night because we all wanted to be back at headquarters with the team. So I didn't, I've never been one of those, like let's the eight of us now go out and celebrate uh, here in our space whatever in New York while everyone else is. So uh, we're going to fly back and be with the company that night. So I fly back to San Francisco and I gather everyone in headquarters. And I think I'm like the smartest guy in the room because I'm in the world, because I'm going to stand up and tell the company what I'm about to tell them. And I tell them, listen, it took us six and a half years to be able to price the stock at $16, zero to 16, six and a half years, four weeks from 16 to 26. Five hours from 26 to 45. Now, we all know we didn't create, um, uh, as, as employees of the company, three times as much value in the last three weeks as we created in the first six and a half years. So just remember, we're now about to embark on a journey in which the stock can go up and the stock can go down. It's not going to only go up anymore. It's only gone up for seven years. And in the last three weeks, it's tripled. So... Just remember, we all know we didn't create three times as much value in the last three weeks. Remember that when the stock goes up and the stock goes down. We know we have a lot of work to do. We just have to stay focused on our goals. And I get off stage thinking, like, I've inoculated myself and the company against the inevitable, you know, you know, uh, dips in the stock price, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and, of course, that's not at all what happens. You know, everyone's like, great, the stock is $45 a share. 
I now am I now have this much stock because I multiply that times how many shares I have, and people you know they start to anchor on oh I could you know, buy a new piece of luggage, for, for example. <laughs> I didn't grant myself many shares. Um, no, I'm, I joke. I'm looking at a luggage bag right now, which is why I say that. Um, so anyway, I thought that was that was fascinating in that I I you know I had this psychology and this mindset, well, that I'll inoculate everybody against what inevitably will happen. And of course, that's not, you don't inoculate yourself or anybody else from that. Everyone's like, what, what? when the stock goes down, people are like, what happened uh, inside and outside the company? You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. One of my favorite apps on my phone these days is the SeatGeek app, which is by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets online. I can be anywhere, in bed, at the park, on the toilet, you name it, and just for the few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually used SeatGeek just this morning to buy some tickets to the Book of Mormon in L.A., and I'm very excited. I'll let you know how it is after I go. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticketing sites to compare prices and find really great deals. They also give you the best bang for your buck because SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, and this is actually one of my favorite features, every single ticket you buy is fully guaranteed. So you know when you're buying a ticket for SeatGeek, you're actually getting the real thing and not some sort of fake that you would get on Craigslist. Best of all, all of the listeners of Inside the Hive today are going to get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. All you need to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code HIVE, which is H-I-V-E. That's promo code HIVE, and you'll get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. I can assure you it is worth every single penny, and it is a great, great experience. So I have a question. If I if I ran a public company, if I ran a company, sorry, and and my board said, "All right, Nick, I want you to take this company public." I wouldn't. I would. What What would I do? Do I buy a like dummy's guide for taking your company public? This is the first time you do it. How do you know what to do? Is it your your CFO tells you? Do you call up people that have done it before? Like, how does one know what to do? Um, I, uh, well, you're of course. Um, you know, there's, this is like when you're an entrepreneur raising money for the first time and going out to talk to, it's not dissimilar from you're an entrepreneur for the first time going out and raising money. And the VCs have all this asymmetric information because they've done it a thousand times and you've done it once. It's frankly the same in the, when you're going public, the bankers have done it a thousand times and you're doing it once. So there's some, there's some information asymmetry there. Um, I called up and talked to a bunch of CEOs, um, uh, who I respected, um, and asked them, you know, about things like, Hey, what's different? What, what are going to be some of the things that, um, um, institutions, um, or, or, um, even internal institutions inside the company will try to, um, change about the company and what should I be watching out for? I remember, um, Reed Hastings, who I think is one of the, um, both great people and great leaders uh, in the world, um, said to me, one of the things that will happen is that the organizations inside the company will start to want to use the excuse of being a public company as a reason we can't talk about these kinds of metrics. Well, we can't talk, you know, we can't tell everybody what this number is because we're a public company now. And, and, uh, and he said, and when, when we took Netflix public, 
I intentionally made sure we were sharing more information and more metrics inside the company um, as a way of pushing back against that natural tendency of bureaucracies or, or uh, uh, yeah, bureaucracies to protect information and hide it. I thought that was great advice. So I got just advice on both things to think about in terms of culture and running the company um, and, you know, uh, doing things like dealing with now. You've gone from, uh, you know, all of your, your investors by name to having nameless, faceless investors, people out there who are shareholders in your company who you've never met. And you had you had some some peop- investors that sent you notes that were not nice and some that were nice. And do you do you... <laughs> <laughs> that happened before and after we were public? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it just generally happens. It just generally happens. We had a large number of investors as a private company. Because, um, again, to make a very long story short, um, just shares of Twitter were being sold um, private in the private market long before we were public, which caused, to be perfectly frank, no end of trouble. Because they the those well, in, somebody like, who wasn't you didn't think was an investor would would be like, hey, I, I want to talk to you about yeah X Y and Z. And people would tell me they were investors in the company, and I would think like, no, you're not. And like, oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we are. <laughs> and which is which. Again, if for people running private companies, it's it's a you know that's a very peculiar phenomenon. You're not used to that. So, since we're on the topic of Twitter, this the topic that uh, I'm sure everyone listening wants to know, and and something that you and I have talked about briefly a little bit. Um, uh, so, a few months ago, after a certain uh, Donald Trump became president, he told Fox News um, that he wouldn't be president if it wasn't for Twitter. And the reason he said that was because he said that he was able to. Um, to dispute things in the media. He was able to push his own message out, um, have a a large following and so on. Um, And of course, you know, for other reasons that we'll get to. How does that make you feel as someone who was the CEO of of the company? Um, Well, first of all, I don't know whether that's true or not, um, that he would or wouldn't be, would be, wouldn't be president or would be president if it weren't for Twitter. Um, I don't have... I mean, this may surprise some people. It doesn't make me feel particularly one one way or another. Um, and I don't mean that in the sense that um, I'm trying to be aloof about it. I mean it in the sense that it's a, it's a communications platform, uh, one of a number of communications platforms that are used by lots of different kinds of people. And it's not... It, it, uh, I, I don't know that there's anything I would do differently or think about differently um, in terms of how I ran the company um, that would affect any change in the kinds of um, um, uh, people of certain political stripes or something or, 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 or ideologies or lack of ideology that how they would use it. So I, I just don't, I mean, I mean, so I mean, it doesn't make me feel one way or another in the sense that I don't think of if only I'd gone back to 2012 and done X, Y, Z, these other things wouldn't have happened. I just don't think that's a, a, I don't think it's a good way to think about things. But do you think that, you know, I, I sometimes wake up in the morning and one eye open, look at Twitter and think, oh God, what has he tweeted last night? And, you know, there's attacks at at North Korea. Just to be perfectly frank, I'm not sure that's bad. Like you also get to see if someone says something two years later, when they say something else, you're able to go, you're able, you know, you have a whole world of folks now and and journalists like yourselves who can say, 
well, you know, you said something completely different 360 days ago, and here it is right here. And actually, well, now we can put them side by side and see precisely what kind of person you are and whether you're, you know, an, uh, a person of integrity and, and, and who has a strict moral code and an ideology that they're following or whether you're being blown about in the wind by the, you know, um, bluster of your own emotions, not referring to anyone in particular. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that, um, uh, you know, you spoke a lot about um, when you were CEO about bullying and, and uh, trolls and stuff on, on Twitter and on other networks. Um, what I, I mean, and this is partially kind of along the lines of the Trump discussion, um, you know, what, what were there things that you put in place that worked and were there things that you you were never able to put in place? Um, well, Let's see. Let's see how I want to frame this. Uh, first of all, despite, I'll say a few. I'll say a few different things. One, there are lots of um, the people who on Twitter or who on TV or whatever say, you know, Twitter could solve this problem if they just did X, Y, Z. Those ideas, I can assure you are not ideas that nobody in the company thought of and hit their head against the wall when they see the person on TV saying it and going, why did, why did we think to block swear vulgarities? You know, um, There turn out to be all sorts of um, um, subtleties about lots of these things that cause you to um, um, implement more sophisticated solutions uh, than just block people from saying this word. Um, and we could go into all the reasons why, well, why can't you just do X, Y, Z? Um, anyway, to make, again, to make, to, to not go down that rat hole, all these things have been thought of and discussed inside the company Two, um, it is 100% the case that if I could go back to 2010, when I took over as CEO of the company, I had a very, I mean, I remember this conversation vividly at a very specific conversation with another executive in the company about a particular instance of um, really aggressive, hateful um, uh, trolling that was happening between one, that was, that was happening from one user to another user. And, you know, I was adamant that we um, remove this person's, you know, this trolls, this trolling person's account and, um, and, and not let them back on and that was you know, Donald Trump. say, no, it was nothing <laughs> like that. And say, um, here are the five things, you know, here are five things you're, you're not allowed to do. And, um, if I could go, if I could go back to 2010 and have that conversation again, I would have stuck to my guns a lot more on that front. And while understanding the subtleties of the arguments that were presented to me against that been a lot more Put, aired a lot more on the side so did, of. Did you remove uh, that account? I'm, we made a. We might have temporarily suspended that account, but didn't implement these sort of more aggressive rules. Um, and and again, in all these instances, there's a yes. But remember, if you do that, you're also causing. You're also going to be preventing this kind of speech. There just there are there are two sides to almost all of these cases. Even when it seems black and white on the surface, when you look at the issue across hundreds of millions of users, it's less so. However, again, if I could go back to 2010, I would have, I would have, you know, migrated a lot farther to the yeah, I know, I get that, and some, you know, some, um, 
seemingly, you know, seemingly aggressive accounts that are actually innocent will get caught up in this. Too bad. I would have, I would have moved a lot more in that direction. By the way, let me just add one more thing. I do think that since I left, um, and this starts, this started, I guess, in the year before I left. I think that since I've left, the company has done actually a tremendous job of, 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 and I, you know, when things happen to individuals, their response is, well, they're not doing a tremendous job for me. But at scale, across hundreds of millions of accounts, the t- company is doing a great job of getting a lot more aggressive about this. And that, that started at the very end of my tenure and under Jack, they've gotten a lot more aggressive and a lot better about it. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I'm really lucky in my job that I don't actually have to hire people. And the reason I say that is because a lot of friends of mine that do talk about how difficult and cumbersome a lot of the job websites are out there. But they've also told me recently they've been using a service called ZipRecruiter, which allows you to post a job listing to over 100 different job sites with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter uses a really powerful technology to efficiently match the right people to your job, and they do it better than anyone else. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. One of the really great things I hear about ZipRecruiter is that there's no juggling emails or having to worry about people calling your office or text you or fax you or all these other things you have to do when you're hiring someone. You simply go to a screen, rate and manage candidates all in one place using ZipRecruiter's really easy and simple to use dashboard. One of the best things about ZipRecruiter, though, is that they are offering listeners of Inside the Hive a completely free trial of the service. That's right. You can use it for completely for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Hive. Once again, just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Hive and try the service for free. I promise you, you'll love it. It's fantastic. Super simple to use. So one of the questions that I, I always wonder about technology and um, and I've been writing about it for maybe 15 years now um, is, and I see these things happen time again, is that when you look at um, a, a technology that's, that is invented or developed or created, um, whether it's, and we'll stick with social media just for this conversation, there are, um, there are, a, there are good sides and there are bad sides. So for example, Facebook said, Oh, we're going to put out, we're going to create this newsfeed and you can tell your friends what you're doing uh, on Friday night or whatever it is. Um, you know, Jack and Biz and Evan, those guys started Twitter to be able to say what they were doing at a club or, or, you know, whatever it was, a very simple status update. And in all these instances, there are, um, you know, Facebook live streaming video, there are bad things that happen. Um, you know, Russians overtaking, you know, using the news feed uh, to share fake news, um, uh, trolls on Twitter and so on and so forth. Do you think that that there's a, a world in which um, tech companies can foresee those things um, and uh, um, especially knowing what they know now um, and avoid them from happening or is it just impossible to understand? The short answer is no. I don't think they can foresee those things that happen. Um, some of these things seem obvious, they, but they're obvious only in hindsight. Um, I don't think you can... I mean, so for example, 20 years ago, if you had looked at Amazon and said, oh my God, if this is successful, malls will be... You know, no one will go to malls anymore and all the malls in America will become ghost towns. And that's where crime, I mean, you just wouldn't, you, you know, maybe five years ago, people wouldn't have said that. Um, and yet now in hindsight, people say, well, of course, if everyone's buying everything on Amazon, these malls are going to. Um, so I just don't think that's, 
something you can expect CEOs or founders of companies to be able to predict. Having said that, I do think that once you start to see and understand the socio-political and socio-economic implications of, of what you're doing and what you've done, um, it's not helpful and probably um, a responsible thing to do to try to be in, as involved in, as possible, as involved as, as possible in um, helping society um, um, uh, uh, benefit from the implications of, of what you've built um, and um, help the uh, help help on the downsides of the implications of what you've built. To, to speak inarticulately for a moment. Just to <laughs> – you're never an articulate dick. Um, uh, just to wrap up the whole social media uh, uh, thing. I don't know if that – I don't know if what we just – what I just said there made sense. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think you can expect, you know, the CEOs or the founders to – oh, surely you must have known when you created this algorithmic newsfeed XYZ would happen. Once you see it happening, of course, I think you do have a responsibility to, all right, what are we going to – like – what are we going to do about that? And we can't just say, hey, man, it, it's an algorithm. Whatever happens, happens. And I think most, in, for the most part, in, in the specific cases you've been, you've been, we've been talking about here, that's, that's happening. Do you think that, um, that social media, um, that we have seen all the, all the forms of social media that will, that, that will exist? I mean, it's been many no. years since, you know, no? I don't think we've seen all of it. You think um, there's new companies that yeah, will come about? For 100%, for sure. There's just, yes, there will be. I mean, you know, look what Evan did with Snapchat. Um, and he's had a number of product insights that have been in that one company that have been, oh, yeah, that's makes a ton of sense. Oh, look, this other thing makes a ton of sense. Um, uh, some of which stories, you know, I remember when he launched stories. This is why I think, this is one of the reasons I think he's such a really, really strong and maybe the strongest um consumer product guy out there in tech when he launched stories really didn't get adopted by many people for a while yeah. i mean he stuck with stories for a long time when i think a bunch of other executives or product folks would have gone well that didn't work let's try this and he just had a like nope it's gonna work we're gonna keep playing with it and you know eight, 12 18 months later was quite a bit of time it took off no i completely agree i think evan uh, i've seen him speak about millennials and 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 some of the concepts he's had around it and it's it, he understands it probably better than anyone yep. i've ever met yep. um in that regard so you're uh, you have a background um if for people that don't know but you have a background in uh, improv comedy um, yes sir uh and um can you? Can you, I, you? So I, I, I think one of the things that I love about talking to you is that you always have fantastic stories. Can you just give us a good story about your improv days, or even how it related to Twitter or anything like well, that? Well, yeah, sure. Um, gosh, there are lots. Well, so when I first went to Chicago after, so I graduated with computer science degree from Michigan, and decided I'm not going to take any of these technology job offers I have to go be a programmer somewhere. I'm going to go to Chicago and try to get into Second City and then try to get on Saturday Night Live. 
Second City is sort of famous improv, improvisation, sort of home of improvisational comedy in Chicago. So I went to Second City. And to kind of get started in Second City, you go through this Second City training center where they kind of like all the great directors and, and some of the great performers at Second City, for lack of a better word, teach you the here's the history of it and here's how, here's how it works best and, the, you know, rule, quote unquote, rules of improv. I say quote unquote because there really are no rules, but things like uh, yes and and uh, anyway, we won't, go into, we won't go into all this. Anywho... Steve Carell and I are in the same same group in Second City Training Center. We start the same day, like, in the same group. Um, and Steve's this great guy uh, who's just moved to Chicago after graduating, I think, from uh, maybe Denison. Um, and we're there at the same time and go through this whole thing together. So, you know, started with him and was with him at Second City for the first, uh, for the first sort of year and a half there. Um, and we go... We go separate ways in Chicago and do some separate things, and uh, he's on he's on the Second City main stage for for quite some time, and meets his wife Nancy Wall, who gets hired on Saturday Night Live. So they leave and move to New York, um, and I'm doing stuff with the Annoyance Theater at this other Im- improv uh, palace in Chicago. Um, we don't see each other for like thirty years <laughs> at all. So at the, the loose, I'm become CEO of Twitter. Of course, obviously, having been an improv comedian in Chicago, become CEO of Twitter 30 years later. And I'm at this fundraiser at the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, hospital in Palo Alto. And Steve Carell is giving the keynote address at this fundraiser. Um, he's done some work with them and his family's done some work with them. And he's giving the keynote address. And knowing that he was giving the keynote address, um, I bring this... Um, Chicago Sun-Times review of our Second City show with our picture in it from 30 years ago to the to this thing. So uh, he gets done and comes off stage, and of course, it's Corral, so he's like got 20 people around him, and I just kind of patiently wait. But everyone's still hanging around him, even after they're saying hi to him and taking selfies with him and so forth. So after most of those people have done that, but they're still hanging around him, I go up to him and, you know, and, and shake hands and... and and tell him like, hey, look, I brought this, look, I brought this thing, uh, this clipping. And I show it to him and he pats me on the back and says, I'm sorry it didn't work out for you. Um, <laughs> you were only able to go on to run uh, this company. Anyway, uh, that's a long improv you story. Had a, uh, you had a, a story you once told me, which I think is, is a great story. Uh, I remember asking you about how you, um, how you deal with situations where – that are really difficult, um, especially as someone who's running a company. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah. and you, you told me the story about once yeah. when you were doing improv that, was a, that led you to, to say, okay, this is how I do it. Yeah. I, well, uh, so um, I'll back up a little bit. I, when we first introduced the Twitter ad platform, I'm about to go on CNBC live after the announcement because CNBC wants to do this. Hey, we're going to do this live five-minute segment. Um, back in the studio with you and is it okay you know are you going to be okay doing live tv you know with your with not knowing what the questions are in advance like to camera and it's just going to be you and the camera is that going to are you going to be okay with that or you know don't don't worry don't be nervous and i and i laughed and i said i think this is probably what you're referring to i said i went on stage in front of 2000 people in adelaide australia at 11 p.m. at night 
after they'd been like being served alcohol for hours during this like long com during this long night of a comedy festival. And so they're now like they're drink they've been drinking and it's late and they've already seen three things. And the thing before we go on, there's three of us and doing our improv show is like kills it. It's a bunch of local Australian guys and they just crush it. So we're already like, oh, you know, oh fuck. Like we're gonna go, we've got to follow the locals who just knocked it out of the park. They're drunk. And here come these three American guys. And we go out, and it's an hour-long improv show. Um, and I won't bore you with the details of it, but it's entirely improvised, the whole thing. So there's no guarantee. There's no, like, it's not going well, but at the 10-minute mark, we know there's this great line that everyone loves, right? It's not. So we start off, we're five minutes in, and it's already going horribly. <laughs> and this guy near the front row yells, you suck, get off, like loudly. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, wow, we have 55 more minutes, you know, what are we going to do? And so when the, when the CNBC producer said, you know, hey, we're going to be doing these questions to camera live for the next five minutes. Are you okay with that? I was like, yeah, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> that's gonna be total that's gonna be totally fine. I remember in my back of my mind I saw these like two thousand, you know, angry people. Was that the worst hour <laughs> of your comedic life? It's, there were there were there were a lot of those kinds of shows. They just generally were less people in the audience and, <laughs> and were been so, drinking were more fewer sober. for for a shorter period of time. So after you after you left Twitter, you uh, you went and worked on you went back to your comedy roots for a little bit, and you went and worked on the Silicon Valley show. Yeah, was that was that fun? Was it was it a amazing? What was it like being so in the first room? of all the writers' room? There is, I mean, it's room. It's an immensely talented group of people. You've got writers from Arrested Development, from Thirty Rock. You've got Mike Judge, of course, um, Alec Berg, who's showrunner for Curb Your Enthusiasm, and you know, last couple of years of Seinfeld. So it's like an who's who of comedy writers. Um, so it was, you know, it was, it was fun and intimidating, you know, because I would have, I normally, if I think if we're, in, if we're having a conversation, as you know, around a table and there are six of us and I, th something pops into my mind, my mind, that's funny. I say it. And it's usually funny. And it's, you know, and I'll, I feel like I have a decent hit rate in this room, like nine out of 10 times. I just like, don't say it, you know, don't say it, don't say it. They're going to hate it. Um, and I mean, it's a, you know, that's a tough room to pitch things in. Did you, did any of your jokes make it into the show? Yeah, but most of the time, you know, they were so generous and nice about it um, they, <laughs> that I would pitch things and instead of looking at me and, you know, nah, they would, they would say things like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alternatively... <laughs> Or, or yeah, yeah, and something totally, something totally different. Did you get was, to which was a which was a very polite way of saying you know maybe keep your next couple thoughts to yourself. Did you get to uh, <laughs> get to pay anyone back for being mean to you or anything like no, that? No, tragically, no. But I did get to you know I did have have fascinating insights into um, this sort of uh, a couple of the differences between the Northern California and Southern California cultures. Um, for one, uh, the folks in the writer's room, you know, they come up to Silicon Valley, actual Silicon Valley, and, and uh, talk to lots of companies and lots of CEOs to research the show. And they, 
I think rightly so, found it endlessly amusing that every single company in San Francisco and Silicon Valley they would go Silicon Valley that they would go talk to would say to them look them straight in the face and say you know here at insert name of company we're changing the world we're making the world a better place <laughs> and you know they would look at them and go you realize the guys in suite 4 405 and the folks in suite 215 and are also think you know and by the way those guys are just so I think even in the one of the first episodes in last season in season three, Richard goes and interviews with a, these guys that are drawing virtual mustaches on on people, and the CTO says, "Richard, this is going to change the way people see each other." You know, it's gonna, <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, so they find that endlessly amusing, and I think that's probably uh, probably fair. So you you're only on the show for one season, right? Season three. Yep, season I was three. down there down there last year. Season and when, three. Did you, did you want to stay on, or was it you were like, okay, I've I've done, I've had my so fun. So here's the thing about um, I, it was it was too time consuming for everything else I wanted to do, particularly with the new company. It's really hard. Um, writing comedy for TV is uh, long hours, uh, <laughs> hard, and. Uh, you know, you're in the room, though. You know, you're not like, okay, now let's get up and leave and go to lunch for an hour. You're in the room the whole time. And if, you know, when you need to eat, stuff's brought in there. And you're there till whenever o'clock, whenever the showrunner thinks it's time to, you know, wrap up. Um, and then someone has to take that script home and, and, and okay, write this up tonight and bring bring the draft back tomorrow, and we'll go through that. Someone's up a, you know, in, a, in a whole other set of hours, and that's a ten show series. So I mean, doing 20, 20 episodes or twenty two for network TV has got to be insanely difficult. When you kind of look back at your career, and just wrapping up here, um, is there anything you would have done differently? No, no. Every time, every time I took a big risk and did something that didn't make any sense in the context of what I had been doing or, or what I wanted to do next. Every time I took a big risk, it always ended up being great down the road. I mean, look at just abandoning all my programming offers and going to Chicago to try to get into Second City and having to work random odd jobs there. You were a crate like and barrel, right? That I, I was working at Crate and Barrel during the day, and I worked at a nightclub coat room during the night when I had nights off from from show performing. And I remember a guy in my computer science uh, class at Michigan came into the nightclub one night, like with a bunch of coworkers from whatever tech job he had, and like checked his coat in the coat room, and I took it. And he looked at me, and he was like, "Hey," <laughs> and you know, he didn't say it, but it was he had this he had this wow, what happened? Drug pro heroin problem? I mean, like, what happened to you? Why are you? You were in my com you were in my graduating class at Michigan in the computer science department. Why are you checking coats at the Limelight nightclub in Chicago? Um, but but that ended up being enormously beneficial to me as a leader, um, as a communicator, as someone who can get up in front of a, a company of you know four thousand people and try to speak frankly and openly with them. I wouldn't have changed anything. So just last question. Um, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received from someone or that you've given to someone else? The best piece of advice that I can give to other people is you can't, you know, I, I said this to the, um, when I gave the commencement speech at Michigan, I'll try to summarize my commencement speech in one tight answer to a question. 
I said to the graduating class there, I said, you know, you've all gotten here by meeting and exceeding expectations. That's how you got to where you are today, graduating from this great school. I said, but the interesting thing you have to realize is that going forward, there are no more expectations. So if you try to live your life by doing what you think you're supposed to do next, Maybe you think there's, maybe you you manufacture some expectations or you have some externally put upon you from relatives or what have you expectations. If you try to live your life by doing what you think you're supposed to do next, when things go wrong, as they inevitably do in life, you'll be stuck there frozen on the stage of your own life, not knowing what to do next um, because you're living some other life. If you instead do um, what you want to do and what you love to do, um, then when things go wrong, um, you it won't matter because you'll um, be resilient in having followed a path that you enjoy and love. And when things go wrong, as they inevitably do, uh, you'll zig when when life zags. Um, and I've I've always found that to be true. And um, so my my strong advice for people is. Um, not trying to live a life based on um, on external expectations and not layering anything other than that on top of it, um, I think is is all there is to say about it. That's framed lots of different ways by lots of different people. Uh, it turns out to be um, a remarkably difficult um, choice for people to make. Well, with that, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thanks for having me. Thank you to my guest, Dick Costolo. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there, preferably a good one. Thanks to all the folks at Digital Media for their production work. Thanks to my editors at Vanity Fair. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors, SeatGeek and ZipRecruiter. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you all next week.